Hey, I'm going to have you turn to Matthew 14 this morning if you have your Bibles. Matthew 14. If you need a Bible, we have Tom right here who is holding stacks of Bibles. So just raise your hand if you would like a, a print Bible this morning. Um, and he'll, he'll, uh, he'll run over to you and give it to you. You don't got to feel ashamed of that. Um, but we'd love you to have one. Matthew 14. If you're on a device, we're going to be going through the ESV version. And there is a, uh, there's, we, Melissa and I have this, uh, we have this, this outside porch that was converted into a sunroom at the house that we, uh, we live in, at the house we live in. Where else would it be? Um, it's a slow morning for me, guys. Um, but what's amazing is we, we, get to, we get to sit there in the mornings. It's where we, you know, uh, start our day and pray and, and read God's word and, and catch up on life, catch up on the sleep we had. And... Uh, so we get to see things, though, because we can see out the window onto the street. And there, uh, for the past couple of months, there has been this dude on rollerblades that has been attempting very early in the morning. Uh, and he has a backpack on. It looks like he's going to work or school. And he's been just attempting to get up the street. And um, clearly, this is not a brother who is a rollerblader, right? I mean, he is so stiff. I mean, he literally, it, it takes him about an hour to get up the street. It's like a newborn trying to take his first steps. It's so bad. I mean, you should, I mean, if you could see the look on his face while he's doing this, you know, and I'm, I almost feel bad that I'm looking at him like I shouldn't be, but it's like, well, you're right in front of my house and there's a window. I don't know what else to do. Um, but the look on his face is just so, so scared, um, yet so determined to just get down the street. And he's been doing it now for, for a long time. Um, in a sense, this is it's kind of an analogy for, for our lives. We are, we are fearful, we are wobbly people. I'm watching this brother, I'm semi-judging him, except there's no way I'd put on those blades for even a minute, right? But it does kind of, in a lot of ways, kind of speak to who we are, you know? And believe it or not, um, like I said earlier, I am a person, I'm a human being, therefore I fear. And I fear with both rational and irrational fears. We, we contain both of those kind of fears uh, in our lives. And then interestingly, we, we come to scripture and we're commanded by God to, to do what? Well, to fear not, don't fear. And yet on almost every page, we see examples of how godly people react to fear as well as how they act out of fear. And there's a theological term for fear that I like to use, and it's called scaredy cat, right? And that, that, really, that really encompasses a lot of, of how I approach things, how I react to things, and how I act when things I'm faced with cause that kind of fear to surface in me. So this morning, we're going to just unpack a story about the apostle Peter, probably my, my favorite person in all of scripture, because uh, this is a brother who, who wears his fears on his sleeve. He wasn't shy about his fears. Some of us are shy about letting our fears become exposed. Maybe Peter was shy, but all the accounts were given of him are usually that he doesn't seem very shy about his fears. He's the guy who, I mean, almost unbelievably so. I mean, this is a guy who rebukes Jesus at some point. He, he disagrees with Jesus. Uh, he denies Jesus. And eventually, this is the same brother who dies for Jesus as a beloved apostle and friend of Jesus. And so what we see as we look into all these different stories of Peter, we're just going to look into one this morning, is that God remained faithful to Peter 
He remained faithful to him like he remains faithful to us in our own fearfulness and in our own faithlessness because sometimes fear causes us to run into areas of faithlessness for us. Now, before we dive into uh, verse 22, that's what we're going to be picking up. And if you look at the previous verses from 13 to 20, we have this uh, story about how Jesus had just finished uh, basically preaching a conference for 5,000 men, not including women and children. But it turns out that nobody booked any food vendors for the event, right? So after Jesus preaches, uh, he does something really unique. He personally provides catering for everybody, right? With five loaves of bread and two fish. You guys have probably heard this story. What's interesting about this story is that everybody eats and everybody is satisfied. Everybody eats, everybody's satisfied. The disciples are there, they ate, they were satisfied. There was no fear of hunger pains in the night. There were plenty of leftovers. They had baskets full of food left over. It was such a classic Jesus move, wasn't it? To provide everybody what they needed at the time that they needed it. And so when we read this story, it causes me to wonder where, well, where my head might be after experiencing something of that magnitude, right? I mean, would it, would it have stayed with you having experienced that kind of a miracle? I mean, how long do you think you would have remained kind of dumbfounded or, or, or in awe, you know, seeing what you witnessed about all of this food being provided out of five loaves and two fish? How long would you have just remained sort of just transfixed? Like, I can't believe this happened. And maybe we should reflect on that for just a second. How much would that would have stayed with us? I mean, at one point, would you go back to shrugging your shoulders and saying, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was cool. It was cool. But it causes me to wonder how much our fear is born from our forgetfulness. Because that's kind of a little of what we see here, what happens to the disciples and to Peter um, as we pick up here in verse 22. So if you want to read along with me, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Let's just pause right there for a second. So after he dismisses the crowds, Jesus tells his boys to immediately Again, I, I want to take note of that word, immediately get in the boat and then go, these two words, before him to the other side so he could go on a, just a brief mountain retreat for some alone time to pray. Now, again, I don't want to miss putting an emphasis on those two particular wordings there, immediately and before him, because they tell us something about Jesus. They tell us that Jesus is never arbitrary when it comes to timing. He didn't say, guys, why don't you wait a few hours or if you want, just camp out or whenever you want to start making your way across the, 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 the water, you know, I'll catch up with you. He said immediately charges them to go across the water. And then secondly, the disciples thought they were going on a boat ride without their captain. And if they thought that, they were wrong. And it causes me to think that in our fear, in my fear, we forget how much Jesus works unseen 
behind the scenes, yet always seeing us, right? It's just that sometimes what happens, which is what we'll see here, the lenses of our mind become foggy when the weather of our life changes unexpectedly. And doesn't the weather of our life change unexpectedly? Rarely do we see or know what's coming by the time it hits us. It just kind of hits us. So by the time he's finished praying, it's late, the boat is long gone, and it becomes caught up in some rough waters, it says. So at 3 a.m., Jesus literally steps out on the water, again, as a man unconcerned by lack of transportation or travel weather, right? And he approaches them, it says in verse 25, just walking on the sea. Notice how nonchalantly this is stated in the text, right? Like there's no caps. It's not all caps, he walked on the sea. There's no qualification, there's no exclamation point. If I were to tell you a story about Jesus approaching me walking on the sea, I might get a little animated. But that's not what we see here at all. And it might be helpful for us to remember that this wasn't Jesus' first miracle. What did we just read about with him feeding the 5,000? I mean, this is someone who just created a literal banquet out of a number four value meal, right? So this, this, this stroll he takes on the water, this supernatural stroll on the surface of the water provides even further evidence that this is somebody different, right? This is someone who rules over the elements, unlike us. This is someone who is supernatural in nature, unlike us, because he happens to be creator and Lord over all of nature, unlike us. So maybe we should pause so as to not miss the significance, even right here, even if we go no further, and we are, but to not miss the significance of the power of God in our lives as it's on display here. The disciples we're seeing are completely at the mercy of the waves, like me and you. While Jesus walks over the waves to become their act of mercy, like we're gonna see here. Jesus, God the Son, unfamiliar with restrictions, unfazed by what we describe as miraculous. I mean, a miracle for me is when I get to church on time, preach under 40 minutes, and wake up happy on Monday because of it, right? Let's pick up back in verse 26. This is what it says. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So now we see these fearful, forgetful, just like you and me, disciples, man, just totally rushing into panic mode. Does that sound familiar in your life when you're faced with something that changes unexpectedly for you, something that you weren't expecting, your first tendency is to misidentify it, to maybe not even see it for what it exactly is, but it conjures up so much fear inside of you that it becomes your natural reaction. And of course, how can we blame them, right? I mean, seeing a guy walk on water, it feels like the start of a scary movie, right? I mean, if Jesus would have had a GoPro on his head, we'd have some unbelievable footage <laughs> 2,000 years later, but we didn't, we didn't have that. So you got all these rough and tumble dudes, right? These fishermen, 
crying out in fear. Fishermen, right? I mean, they're, they're used to a little choppy water. They're used to a little wind. But they're crying out in fear. They're forgetting all of the fear knots that they've been told all this time that they've been with Jesus, forgetting that it was Jesus who had fed them and sent them a few hours later, not arbitrarily, not leaving them out on their own to fend for themselves. Do you remember that in your daily fears? Do you remember that? That Jesus is the one who has fed you and who has sent you and who will keep you with the gentle strength of his impossible to let you go hands. Do you forget that? He'll also calm you when your fears seek to ruin you. And those fears become the temporary ruler of your life. He does it right here. What does he say? He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I mean, how many of us have that on our screensaver, right? Yet how often do we view Jesus like the disciples do here? We think he's out to scare us when in reality, he's out to secure us. We think he's going to punish us when in reality, he's there to preserve us. We think because we're in a place of unsettledness and uncertainty that he's abandoned us. When the truth is that it's precisely those moments he uses to banish our fears and build our faith. How forgetful do I become in both my rational and irrational fears. Look at verse 28. And Peter answered him and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. What's so interesting about that is Peter answers Peter asks, just like I would, suspicious in nature, unsure if it's really the Lord, doubting what he sees, even after Jesus lovingly assures them and says, it is I. It's so classic Peter. It's so classic me. In his fear, he flips the clear words of Jesus from it is I to Lord if. It's you. Command me to come to you on the water. What's so interesting is that in our world, as fearful people, we live a life of if it's you's before the Lord, don't we? If you're really the Lord, we say, please show me you're not here to scare me. Please reassure me that my doubts about your motives aren't true. Because in this moment, once again, I don't really think you are who you say you are. You're a ghost to me. But then we see Jesus' response. So different than our responses to people that come to us in their fears. The lack of rebuke in Jesus' response. It's really telling, I think. He says, come. No judgment over Peter's fears or his doubts. And we should remember that. Come to me, Jesus says. There he is, Jesus, on the water, calling labor-heavy Peter. 
the burden-bearing Peter to do what? To walk. To enter the dark waters with the one of whom the darkness is as light as the psalmist tells us. Now that's, the, that's something to stop and think about right there, I think, right? Well, I don't know about you, but at this point, I can only imagine what the mood in the boat is, right? One minute you're having grown men seeing ghosts, the next minute you have Peter getting ready to levitate on water like it's Stranger Things 4, right? The problem, of course, is that there's still a storm. There's still a storm. And we all have moments like that, don't we, like Peter? You step out into the dark waters of your life. Eyes fully-ish on Jesus, and you think, I got this, I got this. Until you realize that watery havoc and windy chaos are just swirling all around you, beckoning you, right? You had no idea what you were stepping into. You may have seen all of the bad weather and the brokenness around you, but you never thought it would threaten to tremble you in fear. Because fear is an exposure of something in our lives that says, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. This has taken me by surprise. This is unexpected. And that's what heightens our fears in our lives. Look what happens next in verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, Peter was. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. Now, here's a curious thing because Jesus doesn't calm the waters before he asks Peter to step out into them. And it makes Peter afraid because there's Jesus right over there. You guys following with me? But there's waves like right over here. So when my grandpa used to stand in the pool and tell me to jump because he would catch me, it's not like I didn't see him standing there. I saw him, right? It's that I saw the water in between me and him. I was afraid that the water would pull me under faster than he could pull me out if if he failed to catch me. If it's you, Grandpa, call me out. If it's you. It's not that we can't see those waves in that wind when God asks us to have faith and believe him. It's just that we get so fixated on the wind that we forget who's already standing in the midst of it. Do you guys hear me when I say that? Man, that's hard for me. It's hard for me when I read that and I think about my own fear in times that feel a lot like what Peter's experiencing. It's probably good to keep in mind that the only reason Peter is even successfully walking on the water on his bare feet was because Jesus called him out. What's interesting is that he has this newfound awareness of the storm. And this newfound awareness of the storm is causing him to sink in it. I mean, it almost causes you to look down and go, Peter, a question for you. You're just now noticing the wind, right? But it was the wind, wasn't it? It was the wind. That violent, invisible, uncontrollable wind. Does that bring up any metaphors in your life? 
Peter could steady his step, but he couldn't steady the wind, right? It was too powerful. And you know what? It was. The wind was too powerful for Peter, but Peter forgot that he wasn't being supported by his own stamina. When Jesus called Peter to come, he didn't expect Peter to step up. He was asking Peter to step out. There's kind of a big difference between those two things, right? Does this sound familiar to you? In the ways that, man, we embark on something, we feel like, man, we got to pull up, the, I don't know what bootstraps are, but we got to pull up the bootstraps, you know? I haven't had a pair of straps on my boots since I've had boots. I don't know. We're still trading out on the 18th century on that metaphor, right? But I feel like, man, I, I got to somehow get my, I got to get all my stuff together. I got to collect myself. I got to step up. Step up, man. Well, in reality, God's always calling his people to step out because he's going to raise them up. There's a big difference between those two things. It's hard to know how to distinguish. But you know what's interesting? Peter did, he did step out, didn't he? Peter did step out. We're real hard on poor Pete here, right, for sinking. But we give him no credit for stepping out. Well, let me propose this thought. Would it have been better for Peter to make it all the way to Jesus or to start sinking and need Jesus to save him? What did Jesus actually have planned for Peter in that moment? We'll revisit that in a minute. But here's verse 31. It says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And here we have the good news. Here we have the gospel. Peter, seeing the predicament he's in, realizing his instability and inability, his powerlessness against just the erratic and dramatic wind and waves. He cries out. He says, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, by grace, raised you up with him, Paul tells us. Remember that Peter was always going to sink and Jesus was always going to save a sinking man by raising him up to be with him. Jesus asks, why so little faith, Peter? Why did you doubt? But Jesus doesn't get angry with Peter and do what my sister did in the pool, which was keep dunking my head underwater until I couldn't breathe anymore because she was really mean. The picture here is one of Jesus carrying the boy with the wounded pride and the fearful eyes back with him. Not alone, but with him to the boat. Then the wind ceases. Interesting that Jesus would keep the wind blowing until they got back to the boat. The disciples' response to what it says in verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. So the response when Jesus faithfully addressed the fearfulness of the disciples and most specifically Peter was that they saw him and they worshiped him. All that fear, all that lack of faith, 
I think what this story tells us is some things about who God is and how he responds to us in our fearfulness. I think one thing we can learn is that God sends us through fearful waters to calm our fears. God sends you through fearful waters in order to calm your fears. Jesus sent the disciples out to sea. What did it say? Before him, knowing they would encounter a storm, knowing they would misidentify him as a ghost when he came to them. Sometimes we say to people who need our help in our strongest and greatest counseling voices, God is sovereign, now go and get better. Sometimes we console people who were walking alongside with some soft and mourning tones. God is sovereign, now go and get better. And it sounds great until the wind begins to swirl violently in our own life. And all that stuff we just said to others becomes folklore for us. I wonder what that tells you about all of your ordained storms in your life. What is Jesus really interested in calming when you find yourself in the middle of fearful, fearful situations? Is he wanting to calm the stormy waters or is he wanting to calm your stormy soul? Jesus could have calmed the wind. He could have walked to the boat. He could have had a nice boat ride with his boys back to shore, but he didn't. He waited for that storm. God is like that, isn't he? When I am afraid, I will trust in you, the psalmist writes, acknowledging that the trust follows the fear, not the other way around. God puts you in a place of uncertainty to make you less certain about your own abilities. He puts you in a place of unrest so that you can be rescued. God's purpose is always for your worry to be transformed into worship. So God does that. He sends you through fearful waters to calm your fears. God's character also in that, it's not changed by your fear. His character is not changed by your fear. Peter wasn't very disciple in this moment, was he? I mean, neither are we. In all, all of our anxiety-ridden talk and singing about God being our mighty fortress and all glory be forever to him. It's the right thing to do, by the way. And yet God, the author, is still going to reach down to you in your fears. And he's gonna finish the chapter he began writing when he bound you to himself through the obedience of Jesus, his son. Do you think your fears and your doubts are that strong and powerful? Was Peter's fear so powerful? Do you think all of your if it is you, Lord's, somehow have the power to change the reach of his hand to take hold of you? That's like standing underneath Niagara Falls worried that your opinion might make the water stop. It's irrational. It's irrational. What we find is that our macro fear and micro faith are no match for the mission of Jesus.
So God, he sends you through fearful waters to calm your fears. He, his character's not changed by your fears. And finally, he reveals his faithfulness in your fearfulness. So your fearfulness is the occasion then for God to reveal once again his faithfulness to you. Listen, if the sea had been tranquil, well, there would have been no occasion for Jesus to do what he did, right? See, the, the big thing, and maybe you've experienced this maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, but the big thing that people tend to center on in this story is that Peter took his eyes off Jesus, saw the wind, doubted and started sinking, thinking it was Peter's lack of faith that caused him to drown. Okay. I think there's a more important point here for us. And I think it's that it's not that Peter sunk, but that Jesus reached down and saved him. Why? Because Jesus already knew Peter was going to sink. He already knew the outcome of Peter's doubts and fears. You should let that help you right now. He already knew the outcome. Jesus sent Peter out to sea, listen, so he could save a drowning man. That's significant for you and for me. He did it in order to show Peter that he was God and that his faithfulness was not dependent on Peter's macro fears and his micro faith. Isn't that phenomenal? You just look at that and you go, what? So that's how we answer the question that I asked earlier. What would have been better for Peter to have made it across the water to Jesus or to be saved from drowning by Jesus? Now listen, the former I probably would have made a better story. The former would have shown a bold and unwavering faith, right? But it also made plunge Peter into arrogance. And if you know Peter, that's not a stretch, right? If you know me, that's not a stretch. But when Peter's doubts and fears overwhelmed him and he started sinking, he got to experience the saving arms of Jesus. What do you think was the more helpful experience for Peter when he was getting ready to start preaching the gospel and suffering persecution because that was gonna be the rest of Peter's life. What do you think is the most helpful experience for you, oh fearful, doubting, delighted in son and daughter of God? If some of you are honest, you would say to me, Ronnie, my faith is so weak. My fears are so immense. I don't think I would have even gotten out of the boat, right? I have so many doubts, so many fears. Well, you're in good company. First off with me, secondly with the psalmist when he writes in Psalm 69, save me, O God, the psalmist writes, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And for some of you, every Sunday morning you walk into this warehouse, that's you. That's a description of you. And yet, here you are. You came here, you came to a place where you knew you would hear God's voice telling you again to come to him and be reminded that when you're too fearful to walk, he will be your shepherd and carry you forever like the psalmist writes. And you'll live to rejoice again like Peter would. 
God doesn't condemn us in our fears. He comforts us in our fears. He reaches out to us. He raises us up in our fears. That rollerblader, that, guy, that story I told you um, 25 minutes ago, he's still riding up our street um, and he's an amazing rollerblader now. I mean, the dude just like has it. You would never know that he hadn't been rollerblading for the last like 10 years or whenever they invented rollerblading. But he's really good. He's learned to move forward less fearfully. His legs and his balance are, are becoming more conformed to the blades. It's still the same pair of skates, blades, sorry. He, he's still wearing the same blades. They haven't changed. He's been more conformed to their steady direction. What a great thing that he didn't let his fear stop him from stepping out. It's true that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But for fearful people like me, who have put their faith in Jesus to save them, I'm reminded that God will surround me and preserve me in the rush of great waters, just like the psalmist writes. At the same time, faithfulness doesn't mean foolishness, doesn't mean foolishness, right? It doesn't mean putting ourselves in situations where we test God for his faithfulness. It causes us to wonder in our fear if we are living a life of disobedience in some areas in our life. It causes us to ask the question here at the end, are we obeying the Lord? Have we fallen into certain fears because we have placed our faith in untrustworthy things? Maybe for us it's money. Maybe money has a stranglehold over us, constantly preoccupied with finances, constantly thinking about ways you can acquire more cash. Maybe greed has a grip over you. Maybe it's a relationship that you wish you had and you've striven after and it's not going the way you want it. So you find yourself just continuously going after a certain person or dreaming of the kind of relationship that you want and you need and God is not materializing it for you and it consumes you and it makes you more afraid at the prospect of maybe never having it. Maybe you're somebody who loves to stay in shape and you've just gotten on one of those trains where it just, that's all you do. It's all you think about. Everything in your life is formed around this idea of just perfection, body perfection, because body imaging just rules your thoughts, rules your heart. It causes you to be afraid thinking, I can't go back. I gotta maintain this, I gotta keep this going. There's so many things that compound our fears and at some point, God will need to save you from sinking in them. Do you think Peter cared what the other disciples thought when he was sinking? I thought about that, right? Do you think when he, when he knew all, the, all of his brothers were behind him and he starts thinking, do you, do you think he cared what the other disciples thought? It certainly didn't look like it, he, like he was trying to save face, right? 
I mean, it doesn't say like, hey, Jesus, hang on, I'm an amazing fisherman, give me a minute, I can probably handle the water. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't tell us that. It says, no, Jesus, Peter immediately says, Jesus, save me. Are you in that place? We're like, no, no, I got this. Those things you described, okay. I tip into some of those things. I am fearful about those things. I do have these areas of rational and irrational fears that characterize my life, but I don't want to go that far, Ronnie. A fisherman like Peter, who had been in countless storms, starts drowning in dark waters, and the first thing he says is, I can't save myself. I can't do this. I'm sinking. Save me. Do you need to cry out to God to save you from some of these areas in your life that have done nothing but produced rational and irrational fears? Peter's fear was a rational fear because the wind was wild. But it was also an irrational fear because Jesus was with him. So in our fear, we recognize God's faithfulness and we recognize the kind heartedness of his faithfulness in our fears as we bring them to him honestly. And we say, God, I recognize these areas of my life where these fears have compounded. Will you save me? Because these waters are up to my neck and I finally realize that I've been drowning. Will you save me? What a great prayer for us to pray. What a hopeful prayer. Because the same response that Jesus had to Peter will always be the same response he has to us. You ask me to save you? Nah, it's 50-50. Because I have my own fears. You ask Jesus to save you, it's 100-100 because there is no fear in the saving arms and the loving heart of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna actually celebrate here in one minute the saving arms of Jesus. That's what we do when we take communion. Jesus is who we thank and we celebrate, who gave his broken body and shed blood for us on the cross because we had already drowned in the deep and dark waters of our own sin. So what we do with communion is we recognize and we remember the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that we need more than any sandwich we're going to eat today. We need more than any donut we're going to eat today. We need more than any medicine we're going to need to take today. All of our nourishment comes from the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So when we come to the table, we recognize that together, that all of us, that person next to you in that chair, they need that same saving. I need that same saving. I need to remember that I am a saved person because what happens in my life, I just continue to misidentify Jesus. It's a ghost. Look, it's a ghost. If it's you, Lord, coming to the table is a reminder that Jesus is saying, it is I, take heart, don't be afraid. Because I've taken everything, all of your fears on my shoulders 
on the cross. So that's what we celebrate. I'm going to pray as I pray. The ushers are going to come, and then we're going to take together. God, we thank you that our fears are no match for your faithfulness. So God, as fearful people, we know that you've commanded us to fear not, and the reason why is because you have steadfast love always at our disposal and available to us. Because Lord, all of our fears in reality have been conquered on the cross. And so God, I pray, Lord, as fearful people, Lord, that you would help us. We would be reminded that we can come to you because you're not a mad dad, but you're somebody who is patient and who will raise us up to be with you in all the windy, watery storms of our life. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.